beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. All right, welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. Once again, we're here at the Hot Stove uh, Kitchens in downtown Seattle in the gorgeous Hotel Andra. Uh, you know, it's kind of got a Swedish theme around here, and I've been, I've been wanting to go to Sweden again. I went to Sweden, and I enjoyed it, and I want to go back. I've never been, but I would love to go. Yeah. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas. I have several joints here around town, including this one, the, the school uh, including uh, Serious Pie now out in Totem Lake and here in downtown Seattle and in Ballard uh, in the market where I spend a lot, probably the most of my time cooking or shucking is at the Seatown restaurant in the Pike Place Market area. Are you still doing oysters on Friday? Uh, not as often as I was. Yeah, oddly enough, uh, there's no tourist anymore. And so it's not as busy as it was. So Yeah, winter time. <laughs> In the market. <laughs> when those boats stop coming, man, it's, uh, you can really feel the, the difference. Yeah? Yep. Oh, it goes. We love our locals, though. We do, absolutely. And I was just working this week on a menu for the new Etta's, uh, Big Mountain Tavern and Barbecue. I'm, I'm just, we're just kind of narrowing it down. We're just kind of... Yesterday, the mushroom sloppy joe on roasted sweet potato. Really good. Say, say the name again. Mushroom Sloppy Joe. Sloppy Joe is the name no, no, for like, no. you know what Sloppy Joe is? The restaurant. It is a Big Mountain <coughs> Barbecue Tavern. Big Mountain Barbecue Tavern. BBT. Okay. Thank you for that. You're welcome. We have a large show for you. Thanks for like spelling it out so people really know what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we have a large show for you today. Our National Seafood Month uh, continues here as we embrace the goal of increasing seafood consumption around here and of course with our audience that means around the world we'll visit with kelly goodwin of maritime operations at the port and uh, brie dwyer at uh, bering sea crabber you know the big news out there is that the crab season has been canceled i was talking that is to a, huge uh, news. a guy from trident fisheries yesterday and uh whew, that's scary he said it's not completely like there's areas that are going to be open like for bear dye or stuff but the, right. the majority of the the crabbing season. The headline in the paper was what? Something, a billion crabs are missing or something. It's like, where'd well, they go? They went to Morocco with you, huh? We're going to hear a little bit about your right. trip to Morocco. What a fantastic trip. What a beautiful Were you I on mean, the road to Morocco? Did you see I was Bob definitely on, big, Yes, I was definitely Crosby. on the road to Morocco. I was yeah. on, uh, we did a complete circle from Casablanca all the way to the Atlas Mountain, down south to Warzazat, back up to Marrakesh and to Syria on the water. So yeah. we did a complete circle and almost a complete circle. And I tell you, if you have not visited Morocco, I would advise anyone extremely safe, extremely kind, and what a beautiful culture. Very kind people and well-received everywhere. So, All right, we're going to talk about that for a whole segment coming up. It's gratin season, Terry, your favorite thing. Uh, there was a time on this show years ago where when I would ask you, what did you make uh, this week? And every single time it was some sort of gratin correct gratin correct. is one of the easiest things to use i got myself shaving this morning and uh, <laughs> yeah, we can see that chef so, okay we're on the radio now though wait. yeah i just want to ra- i just want the radio listener to feel sorry okay. for me all right, all right. <laughs> uh it's pipe place brewing time uh, I, I just saw that they're going to open a couple of new pubs uh, I don't know if Charlie is still involved or not. Do you know if Charlie Finkel is still involved in Pike? Well, he's listed as founder, founder so we'll okay. hear we'll hear more uh, when head, Leslie gets here. Yeah, their brewmaster is going to come in and talk about what they're up to. Lastly, unlike last week, last week was the quotes, right? Yeah. 
Uh, it worked. It went pretty well, Terry. I was I was surprised because Pam is always trying to figure out an alternative. How to get rid? How to get rid of trivia? Yeah, because it's. I guess it's a lot of work to put together. Sure is. But quotes couldn't quotes couldn't have been easy. They weren't. Okay, good. As long as, as, long as it's not easy, right? I'm happy. <laughs> what's What's the quote of the day? I lost. I, That's the quote of the day. I oh, lost did. the contest. I only yeah. drink champagne on two occasions. Mrs. Tatanger, uh, Bollinger. I mean. It, they use that line? That's Mrs. Bollinger who said, I drink champagne when I'm sad, I drink champagne when I'm happy. <laughs> I think it's been said by many people, apparently. So but apparently she was that Pam was lying last week. And <laughs> lastly, today we're going to play Rub With Love, Food For Thought, Tasty Trivia. Uh, it's uh, going to be an exciting day. Pamela, our producer, is on site here. Sean, our technical director, is over there in the corner having twitches in his neck. We can go give him a massage during the commercial break. I think we should. Uh, my uh, taste of the week, you know, uh, the pred- prediction is that it's going to be frosty at the farm in the next, within the next 10 days. Oh, wow. And so everything's, at this point, you're racing to kind of get the things off the vines or off the plant that you can save and put up for the winter. So Jackie picked all the basil yesterday. Oh, my God. And we've God. had just this gorgeous fall, mm-hmm. so it just kept going. You know, normally it would be gone long ago. But tomatoes are really rocking right now. We're still getting green beans. The basil, she just picked all the pears. Uh, so last night I had pasta pesto for the first time. I was trying to think, because that's something that Pam would make and have us over for, but I haven't had it in 10 years, I don't think. Wow, you're just, out of just it, a man. Simple you, haven't, little pasta. you haven't made it in probably 20. True, and uh, <laughs> it was delicious. And, of course, we had enough to put up uh, several half pints into the freezer. But we made quarter pints. Right. And so that when we just, it was enough for two or four people to have pasta. And a pack of roasted pine nuts. <laughs> Those two she together. She remembered to buy pine nuts, so she used toasted almonds instead. Oh, yeah. I like the, that pine, works too. I like the pine nuts better. Yeah. A lot of people use walnuts. And Pascalina down at the Pike Place Market, Pascalina Verde, do you remember her? Oh, of course. She always had the, when I first moved here, she had the mountains of basil in front of yeah. her. But she had her recipe, which was 60% basil, 40%. Bitter flat leaf parsley. Mm-hmm. And she liked oh. that marriage of the two. Of course, the pine nuts and the olive oil and lemon juice and Parmesan cheese. And Well, I like the idea of the parsley mixed with the basil. I think it's a very good idea, actually. Because I think it, it supplies the, you know, we, basil has a little weakness. And I think it supplies, the parsley helps it sustain that. So, All right, that's my taste of the week. Pasta pesto. I know it seems ordinary, but um, it's, it's a thrill to make again. My taste of the week is... Dates. I brought some dates back from Morocco. These are fresh from 20... You took your date with you. From 2022. I'm going to ignore that. 2022 season, which is about two, a month and a half ago, these dates were on the palm tree in the oasis of um, Merzuga, which is just before the Sahara Desert. We went on a camel ride. I actually didn't do the ride, but everybody else did. Uh, in the desert. And... Uh, there's a town just before that that is called Merzuga, and um, this is where this man, this farmer, picks up all these dates and produces them. We bought it from him, loose. He gave me a box. It didn't take me until I got to Seattle to realize that the two cardboard boxes that he gave me were Belgium chocolate, but they were all <laughs> filled all with, full with dates. dates. <laughs> and I realized when we got home, Kathy goes, that's not the original box. I go, there is no original box. This is a farmer. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was Belgium chocolate boxes. But anyway, those dates are fresh. You've never had dates like this on the market here. These are fresh. They are like, less than, like I said, a month old picked. 
and they're succulent and this is what a date should taste like now do they uh, do anything to them it's just picked yeah. off the tree or do they cure them somehow they or cured what? them and i didn't get the whole story i was trying to get the whole story but i never really get to it because there was 14 of us buying dates it got really busy and i keep trying to get the information but i do believe they put them in sugar and uh, let them macerate overnight or so i mean not overnight the, the whole thing stays together and that's how the, the dates become confit-like. But it's already ripe when they pick them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to take the shell out. There's a shell or something like this. That's I know there's a seed in the middle. There's a shell oh, yeah, around there's the a outside. Seed in, like, a, like a leaf, not like a, ah. sh- like a shell. Ah. And uh, anyway, they, they cure them and they put them into those boxes. But this is what a measure date tastes like. It's lovely. I will say that. Welcome, Kelly Goodwin. Next, Bree Dreyer uh, on the Hot Stove Society Show. Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Without missing a beat, you'll drop your line down to 42 feet. If you don't screw up, it won't be long. Someone on this boat's going to sing Fish On. Fish On. Fish On. It's Tom Douglas. And Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. The chef in the hat. Terry, do you know any words from Morocco at this point? Are there any words you can say like, hey, dude? Um, I, can, I can say, um, yalla. Do they speak uh, two languages? Are they French and? They speak French, they speak Arabic, and Berber. So there's at least three languages. Well, we have a, you know, it's National Seafood Month. We have a tugboat captain here. Who uh, Are you, Kelly, are you just in the sound or do you go all over the place? Well, I'm currently maritime operations for the Port of Seattle. Uh-huh. I kind of put my tugboat world away, but it was uh-huh. uh, local uh, dockings and undockings in the lake and uh, tows up and down Puget Sound and into Canada. So three in a row load and tow, is that a fallacy or is that true? The lights on the top of the tug? Oh, yeah, that's true. Three in a low yeah. load and tow, right? Yeah. Got to watch Explain. out for the- you know, when a tug's going up sound and, yeah. and they have the three lights on the top of their little thing, that means that they've got a tow rope behind them and a load. Because a lot of times you don't see the rope. It's it's in the water. Oh, yeah. And you drive a little boat through there, and next thing you know, you're upside down yeah, and dies. Yeah. Yeah, bad news. Anyway, and many people are familiar with Fisherman's Terminal. You're hanging out there now. Tell us about life at the terminal and the, the crab fleet that's maybe idled this year, all that sort of thing. Yeah, you know... Um I love Fisherman's Terminal. It's uh, one of our most historic and well-known properties. I happen to manage Terminal 91, where we have the large catcher processors, and um, most of them are fishing for the wild Alaska Pollock Mm. um, product, and a lot going on at Terminal 91 that uh, is really fun. It's one of our most complex and interesting properties with uh, fish processing on-site and 8,000 lineal feet of burst space that accommodate the big fishing fleet, which is maybe 200 to 400-foot vessels. Uh-huh. And when they're out fishing, then I have uh, research vessels, ships of state, tugboats, barges, all the fun customers. And so isn't that also where the cruise ships park? Yep, off off season for the fishers, we have two okay. cruise berths there. Right. Yeah, that's what I. Well, that's, everyone can see those hanging out there. Oh, this it's is the one on cities. the bottom of Queen Anne there, on the bottom of uh, Magnolia. Magnolia, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I don't know where ninety one is, but 
Now I know where the... There's those big uh, processors there, like the Golden Alaska group and the ones that I have seen down there. I don't know if Trident comes in there too, but uh, what's the process for you? How do you stay involved in that? Do you have to keep track of what they uh, bring off the boats, or are you just literally the landlord of the dock? A little of both. We're the landlord of the dock. We're um, letting them know where they can tie up and if there's space to tie up and... Uh, making sure they have uh, shore power available so they can cut their engines and generator plants while they're at the dock and in the city. Um, we are keeping track of wharfage, so product that comes across the dock, um, we see that and keep track of that. And um, it's a really great facility. There's cold storage availability there and cross-dock loading. And speaking of Trident, they still have a research and development test kitchen on site. Oh, so. oh! So your job goes. I thought I was down behind Fisherman's Terminal, but they have one on that dock too, huh? Yep. I didn't realize that. Yeah. This is such an incredible world that we are in the middle of, but don't know anything about. Oh, I know a little well, bit. Oh, not, not I do too work much with about Trident. It. Yeah, I. I you I know, just it's didn't realize they had one over there. Lots going on there. I mean, if all the vessels come down down here from the, I mean, from the ocean, coming all the way down to Seattle, we're full of fish and. We don't actually see that. Yeah. You know, it goes unnoticed in some ways. It really does. It's like uh, right under our noses and the most invisible um, industry I think we have in the city. Um, Another thing that happens on Terminal is we have independent packer company, and they they support the Puget Sound salmon industry. So they're bringing salmon tenders in and uh, processing the fish right there in their facility with over 300 employees. And uh, oh. also the uh, net pens are supported that are in the sound. Um, so are they doing the whole value-added thing, or are they just uh, working with fillets? Are they actually putting together salmon with lemon butter on top? You know what I'm saying? You know, I don't know that specific detail. I do know it, uh, a whole fish goes into that processing plant, and meal packages, packaged meals come out. It does. But whether so they're they've doing the whole, done thing. the whole thing, I'm not sure. Huh. Yeah. What's you know the only time I think people realize that we own the port of Seattle, the taxpayers. Yeah. They, they probably is at voting time when you see the commissioners up for election. What? How do we make money at the port uh, with this? Is there there's fees for the docking? I'm sure. As as taxpayers, I know we own the airport, right? We own the port of Seattle, which is part of the airport. How do we make money? Are the cruise ships vital for our? For our, us making money, you know what I'm saying? Is, is it all fishing? Is it all, what is it? It's, uh, it's, it's huge. It's, it's the huge. airport, it's fishing, it's cruise, it's uh, container ships, um, fishermen's terminal, recreational boating. We own several marinas. Mm-hmm. So uh, just putting the whole package together for the taxpayer mm-hmm. is uh, what the port tries to do. It's a serious industry. You know what you should do? I, I would appreciate if you would do, which is put out like a blog saying who we should vote for for port commissioner. <laughs> because what do we know? I know, you know as, exactly. As, as a taxpayer, what do we know? Who's, it comes who's, up in every time Ken, it comes maybe up. You should, Ken, Ken, who runs this promotion every year, maybe you should do that, Ken. Is, is, tell us who to vote for. Okay. <laughs> can you visit, can people visit the pier and see any of this? There are probably opportunities. I love to give tours. So, oh. uh, ah, what's your email address? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but usually it's a limited public access facility at Terminal 91, so you should have a specific reason for 
for mm-hmm. coming to the to the pier. Well, you would. I would love to see it a little bit more open, right. so that people understand the port better. And when we go for funding or this or that, when they say they're going to build a new container cargo area or a new dock or whatever, that we know what it's for and how it works and how important it is to our community. It's, yeah, maybe it can, really is very important. Maybe we can put uh, like a blog online tour, video, virtual tour. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That way that people won't cool. get run over by trucks and all the all the industry that's happening out no, there. No, you can do that at the locks, right? You can get a video of the locks going up the fish ladder and, and kind of check in to see what's rolling. Right now, uh, King Salmon is crazy in the locks, or at least it was a week ago. Uh, who knew? Yeah, it's just great. There's uh, just so many businesses and uh, support services down there that people don't see that are supporting, you know, good wage jobs and family wage jobs and um, the restaurants and the restaurants. Yeah. yeah. Feeding the world. Feeding That's the right. world. Well, Kelly Goodwin has been our guest. She's the senior maritime operations manager at the Port of Seattle, uh, currently manages 10 moorage facilities throughout Elliott Bay, including uh, and the Duwamish River. Uh, and uh, it is a big job. You are, um, you are larger than life. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate the time here and yeah. meeting both of you. Thanks. Can't wait to see the blog. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know, Pamela, maybe you should show Kelly the cover of my first book. I will. Seattle Kitchen, because I was on a tug. You know, she was a former tugboat captain. I traded a dinner for 10 to use that Foss Maritime tug for my cover shot on my first cookbook. Oh, so that's, fantastic. that's a Foss Maritime tug right, right there. So. And they're one of my tenants at 91. Who knew? <laughs> I love tugboats. I pulled the gaff hook. Isn't it called a gaff hook off the side of the wall when I was doing it? And that's what I'm holding in my hand right there on the, that big yellow eye snapper. <laughs> so fun. Up next, Bree Dr- Dwyer is here. She's a, an Alaska Bering Sea crabber and the wife of the deadliest catch captain, Sean Dwyer. Who cares about him? Breeze here. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Come on, I'm a crab and I walk to the left, walk to the right, walk to the left. I'm a crab and I walk to the right, walk to the left. We are back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio. If anybody could go to their local blood uh, blood donation place today, Terry has cut himself shaving, and uh, there might be a need. What are you, O negative, O positive? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, okay. We're gonna have to, when you faint, we'll figure it out. Probably O didon. We're going to continue with our uh, national seafood month here at the hot stove society show you know uh ken uh, come up to the microphone for one second many times uh we've done a show from the big expo down at the it's not quest event expo so maritime what, what is it uh it's called the maritime uh, it's uh, pacific marine expo yeah. Are, is that happening this it's year it's happening it's okay. the weekend before thanksgiving okay and we expect a full house probably around 500 exhibitors about 59% of the exhibitors are from King County, and we're expecting about 5,000 people to wow. attend the show. So it'll be awesome. Well, it's, what I love about it is you get to go all see all the stuff that you work on yeah. in pieces. You see the engine. You see the safety gear. You see every part of what it's you It's pretty work cool. On. It's like a holiday for us. Yeah, exactly. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Reed Dwyer, you're listening to her right now on the microphone of the Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers, uh, part of the Deadliest Catch series. Are you on the boats for that? I've not seen the show. I'm sorry. I mean, I've I've seen it maybe 10 years ago, but 
Um, so my husband is Captain Sean Dwyer. Uh-huh. He's captain of the Brenna A. So he's been is he on a the decent show. dude. Yeah, I mean, I married him, so, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I personally am not on the show. I have tried to go out crabbing in the Bering Sea, but I get wicked seasick. Uh-huh. Uh, the one time that I tried to go, I made my husband turn around and take me back. So. Really? That how is, far out is, did you go? <laughs> a few hours. A few hours. <laughs> that is very kind. I was going to ask about that. Anybody else, he w- wouldn't have done it, but, you know, he married me, so yeah. he had to do it. So you brought us a beautiful treat here today, a big box of Bairdye crab. What is Bairdye? When I put it on my menus, people know what snow crab is, they know what king crab is, they know what dungeness crab is, but a lot of people don't know what Bairdye crab is. Bairdye is kind of like a cousin to snow crab. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have the spiny exterior like king crab does. Um, It's a little smaller than king crab, but a little bigger than snow crab. So there's a little more meat fill in Bairdye. I personally love Bairdye. I think it's probably one of my favorite. It has a little bit of a nuttier kind of flavor to it, sweeter. But this is actually going to be the only Bering Sea crab species that you will see on the market this season. Yeah. Yeah. Are you freaking out? You know, we're holding it together. I think as a community, there's definitely like highs and lows. And right now we're in one of those lows. Um, But I think that the important thing is that a lot of people are really, you know, as fishermen, we care about the resource. We consider ourselves stewards. And so we are doing everything that we possibly can to make sure that we have research and information to understand what is going on. Because there's a lot of question marks for us right now, yeah. one of the big ones being climate change. And if you don't know uh, what we're talking about, the, uh, essentially the Alaska king and snow crab season has been canceled. You say that they're going to let you go after some bear dye. Yeah. I bet it's not a whole lot. Uh, no. So uh, king crab is closed for the second year in a row, and snow crab is closed for the first time in history. Uh, bear dye, we have a little over 2 million pounds to catch this season, but to put it into perspective, uh, for a fleet of our 60 boats, 200 million pounds is wow. closer to what would sustain the industry. So really 2 million pounds is only about three boats worth, you know, going yeah. fishing. Yeah. So how do you distinguish, I don't know this, but how do you distinguish what's on the bottom of the ocean between a snow crab, a king crab and a bird, bird crab? Bear dye. sorry. Yeah, Uh, it's going to be depth. So the different crab species are going to live at different depths and prefer different types of surfaces. Um, And snow crab, or sorry, bear dye and snow crab uh, fish a little bit deeper. Well, it's uh, one of the great pleasures is watching people eat crab down at Seatown. You know, we have a Dungeness or bear dye or snow crab down there, and uh, which is my restaurant down in the market. And it's so fun to watch people come. And, you know, it's expensive. It's like 50 or $75, maybe 75 for a pound of crab. And it's, it's just a treat to sit there and watch them just go after it. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely and a luxury. You're, you're bringing great joy to a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. I, think, yeah. I think it's a feast and a treat. And in this part of the world, we have the best. Mine is well enjoyed. So what can you do uh, when it comes to your boats to kind of retrofit to, to go after something else? Is there an opportunity there? So I know, you know, a lot of the bigger boats, they, you know, they'll do the cod season and then they'll go up and do the the season or, you know, they're just putting traps really on the deck, right? Is the difference. Yeah. So our crab boats, um, what's nice is, you know, a lot of our boats are diversified. Um, One of the, the other big industries that our crab boats are in is salmon tendering in the summertime. So a lot of these boats kind of work as like a fish taxi in the summer. So 
They'll work for the processors, collect the fish into their tanks, keep them cold, deliver them to the processing facility. So uh, all of our crab boats, for the most part, work as tenders in the summertime. So that's great. Because you have the like the really cold uh, water holds, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. like 30, 33, yeah. 34 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cod fishing is another one of the other species that a lot of our boats are going to fish. You know, diversification is really important to a lot of our fleet because it's what keeps the boats, you know, working year right. round. And especially in a year like this, um, it's going to be really challenging because crab is one of the things that keeps crew on the boat. And, and so pays the bills. Yeah. Pays the bills. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of families and small businesses are going to have to make some tough financial decisions. How so. big is the industry? Well, so our fleet is about 60 boats for crab, but in terms of the global seafood industry, it's pretty massive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, the global one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I meant locally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, locally uh, between, you know, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Pacific Northwest area, we have about 60 boats that fish crab in the Bering Sea. All right, let's visit Deadliest Catch for a minute because yes. uh, I don't know much about the show anymore. Uh, way back in the very beginning, um, I knew the guy that got in trouble. They all oh. get in trouble, don't they? they all, do they all get in trouble? <laughs> I can't remember. It was like the, he was the most famous They all get one. in trouble. Some of in them the get He came on the radio show a couple of times. Sure. Uh, but um, it never occurred to me this show would be still going, what, 12 years later now? Uh, I believe we're on 18. 18 years yeah. later. Isn't that, is that, I mean, yeah. I would have yeah. never believed that would have been an 18-year 18 18 show. Nobody gets tired of watching us fish crab, apparently. I guess, I guess yeah. not. And all the drama that goes with it. Well, it's right? also yeah. a very dangerous thing. I think that's why... Phil. Phil, I think. Was oh, Phil Harris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. I think it's a, it's a very dangerous hobby. Uh, well, it's not a hobby. Right. I wouldn't say people... <laughs> I was just kidding. I was just kidding. It's a dangerous um, life. It is. You know, the one thing that you see on TV out there is, are those big waves and weather, and that is absolutely happening. It is, I mean, that is something, when I think about my husband going out to sea, a little part of me is always really worried about what's going on out there. And one thing that I'm so grateful for is the support of the Coast Guard, um, who's always somehow in contact or in some form with all of the boats out there keeping an eye on them. We know the airliners and stuff have the towers, but there is a contact point for the boats? Yep, yep. There's a contact point for the entire fleet, Channel 16, uh, for Uh, Coast Guard. uh And um, it's something that I think all of the boats kind of have this peace of mind going out there because on radar as well, you know, the Coast Guard's keeping track of where everybody's fishing and just has an idea of, you know, weather, ice pack. All of those variables uh, are something that, they have to keep in mind, and the Coast Guard's looking out for them. Do you have the maritime app? Do you keep track? Because I have it. You know, I <laughs> yeah. have Flight 24, I think it's called for the airlines, yeah. which you can see every plane in the sky all over the world. Yeah. But they have a maritime app, app too, that does for every ship. Yes. Um, and I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of it, because yes, I do have it, but... Um, as Just well make as sure your husband's where he says he's going to be. Like, I'm in the middle of the Bering Sea. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and he says, oh, he's in, in tavern, in a tavern at Bali. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, as well as weather apps. I like to keep track of the big weather coming through and the app Windy. You can see the, the wind patterns and knowing kind of which, which way things are going, how uh-huh. the ice is going to blow down or back up or... Uh, do you get up there to Alaska much? Are you, uh, are you hanging yeah. out at the shoreline if, if you're not on the ship? Yeah, so I am actually a professional photographer for the commercial fishing industry. So I've been doing that for about six years. 
So I am up on boats in Alaska at least a few times a year. Uh, I have not been to Dutch Harbor in about a year, but I used to be up there every fall. And yeah, uh, I'm a storyteller for the industry. That's, you know, the most important thing for me that I can do is get out there and tell fishermen stories. I tried to get into Dutch Harbor um, 18 months ago, two years ago, something like that. And we made, in Alaska Airlines, we made three passes and just tried to dive into the fog. And yeah. <laughs> just finally, we ended up, we're out. We're going back to Anchorage. Yeah, so. it's, Dutch Harbor is a very unique place in that it's going to be really difficult to get into. If you don't have a reason to go there, you're not going there at all. Right. For good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking yeah, thank with uh, you. Bree Dwyer, Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers, as part of our National Seafood Month here at the Hot Stove Society Show. On Cairo. So when we come back, Terry's going to entertain us with a few tales from the great country of Morocco. Can't wait to tell you. I'm not going to be able to tell you all about it, but I'll tell you some of it. There's not enough time to tell you all about it. No. Well, we had the date already. Looking forward to that. Thank you, Bree. Thank you. Thank you, Bree. You're listening to us on Hot Stove Society Radio, Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. I've got the blue crab blues. I'm as blue as I can be. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. We have a lively audience. They're all pepped up on quiche and fruit salad. And you know what else? Uh, before we get to your part on this, when Bree was on last segment, she brought us this crab. We cut it open. We ate it. It was so delicious. It's spectacular. Yeah. And I've had a lot of crab recently. And it's as good as anything I've had. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's really, really delicious. We can, it kind of reminds me of sea spider. Well, it is. Which we have in, in France. We call it araignée de mer. Uh-huh. That's very similar to that. Uh-huh. Just like so king crab is. Good. So when you're out there, take a look for bear dye instead of snow. Just as an alternative. Check it out. Is that B-A-I-R-D? I think so. I think so. That's how you spell it. Okay, chef. Uh, you've uh, just returned. Air France. <laughs> uh, Casablanca to Paris, Paris to Seattle, and right. and the other way around. Uh, give us some highlights of your most recent trip to Morocco, because you love it there. Well, I, I loved it the first time I went there for only four days. I, was, I went to Rabat and Marrakesh. But this time, we did a complete circle with 14 people. It was a little group that came with me. And we went from Casablanca to Rabat to Meknes to Fez to Merzouga to the Atlas Mountain, all the way down to Warzazat and to back to Marrakesh, and then to the coast to Syria, and then back up to Marrakesh, and what? then flew home. They would, and I, tell I you, could never do that. They would be so sick of me by well, the end. Of one day we spent eight hours in the bus. So that, that's definitely, a, you know, it needed a little commitment. Uh-huh. But what I saw was a culture that I didn't see the first time I went to Morocco, which is a lot of the Berber... Um, culture, especially um, in the mountain, you know, and I mean, the Atlas Mountain are gorgeous. I didn't realize the, mount- the Atlas Mountain had the lower range, the mid range, and the high range. We went only to the mid range. It was pretty, pretty high already. So in the winter, they have tons of snow, something you were not thinking of, um, which is what helped them go through the rest of the year. Impressive meals in many places. I had a lot of tagines, which, as we all know, is a very uh, common Moroccan dish, but it's very interesting. I think tagine is kind of like tacos to me or something like that where you 
have a million version of it. Every house makes it a little bit slightly differently. Um, I've had it with lemon and olive. I mean, um, chicken and olive, chicken and lemon and olive, chicken and lemon. I did it with lamb, of course. Or my favorite was the first one I had: tagine of lamb with prune and onions. Mm-hmm. Oh my God Almighty! The whole thing was like a melting sweet and savory dish. I mean, the mouth feel was just so gorgeous, silky and. And the flavor, of course, they, you know, what they call lamb, I believe, is baby mutton. <laughs> so it has more flavor. Mm-hmm. And everything is so tender because it's cooked so slowly for so long. Um, I had a cooking demonstration with a chef, a couple of chefs. Actually, one was a chef, one was not. And uh, also making tagine and making bread, you know, the flat bread that they use um, in Morocco a lot. And that was so simple. Water, flour, salt. I mean, you can't like get any spread. You can, yeah, but you can't get any simpler than that. Just mold it together, you know, wait, and then flatten it up as much. Natural yeast, or there's no you no yeast, no yeast. In that one, that we made no yeast. I was impressed by that, and then just flatten it as much as you can on a sheet pan and bake it, and it comes out. It's a three quarter of an inch thick, and you just tear it apart, almost like a pita bread that's not open. <clears throat> that was really, really astonishingly delicious. And um, surprising to me. I mean, you cannot get more basic than that. The other discovery was dates. As you know, I you know, made you try some dates earlier. Not made you. Gave you some dates to try. I mean, that was a real incredible discovery. Because I'm not a... I mean, I like dates, but I'm not a fan of dates. Well, now I am a fan of fresh dates. This was like really, really this beautiful discovery of how gorgeous it can get. Especially once you start using it in cooking and everything. You know where um, I use dates the most? Sticky toffee pudding. Oh, yeah. That it's, like a, be, it's a date cake, essentially, yeah. yeah Low-calorie cake. <laughs> what else? The, uh, I think the vegetables in general. So what everywhere they call salads is not a salad like we know. It's like carrots. You know, it's all those little dishes you get before you start your meal as an appetizer. It's the carrots. It's the, uh, the nuts. It's the olives. It's the, all these different things are called salads mm-hmm. before you start your, uh, your first course of your meal. But they're not a salad with lettuce, which is very interesting. I was dying for... I love green salad. I eat green salad almost every meal. I was dying for a green lettuce. Like, by the time we get to France, I was like, at my mom's house, I was like, I want some of that lettuce that's in the backyard mm-hmm. now. I need some leaves. But aside from that, really, really amazing flavoring. And of course... The spices, the spices. <gasps> we went to this place in Marrakesh where there was a gentleman, there was a professor that really explained everything about the mixing of the Hasel Anout and the, which is the house spice, a mm-hmm. house blend, and um, all the different, you know, the use of cumin and all the different uses of the spices for other than just spicing, such as beneficial um, health purposes and so on and so forth. So there is, you know, ginger. They use a lot of ground ginger. Which is, you don't think of, for some reason, for me, I don't think of ginger in Morocco always. You know, when I think ginger, I think more like Asia, and they use a lot of ground ginger in Morocco. You haven't mentioned what your, um, the thing you always talk about when you're here on the I air. I know, I know, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> okay. And you're going you're gonna to be amazed by that. That was like everywhere. It was like, it would be like going to France and asking for Dijon mustard at every restaurant, mm-hmm. where I went to Morocco, and I almost had to ask for Arisa 
at every place we went. You had to ask for it? It wasn't presented? No. There was no I think there was only one place where Arisa came with a tagine mm-hmm. on the side. But I guess it's not as common as I think it is in terms of putting it on the table for tourists, I guess. <laughs> so they use harissa more as an ingredient than they do as a condiment? Yes, they use yeah. it as an ingredient. No, they use it as a condiment also, but I don't know that they mandatory offer it, I guess. Uh, same, I had also the best extra virgin olive oil ever made than I've ever tasted in my life. It was homemade. This, this uh, guy that we had, Muni, his dad went to somewhere around Murzuga in the oasis where they get the olives, got the olives and made that in his home, pressed olive oil, and he gave me a plastic bottle of it. Oh my God, that stuff is, wow. It's pretty impressive when you mm-hmm. take a fresh fruit like an olive ripe and you press it gently and just do the first cold press. What comes out is, I mean, you just don't find that on the market. Mm-hmm. It's so, I know what they do on the market though. They take that and they cut it up with some other olive oil and then extend the, mm-hmm. you know, the volume. Because mm-hmm. I've never seen olive oil like that on the market. But it's really tasty and delicious. Other things, nuts. They use a lot of nuts. Uh, walnut is huge and used in a lot of places. Uh, cakes, desserts, and also sweets. They use their, their pastries. A lot of the pastries were, uh, for example, what they call gazelle Horn of gazelle, which is a little shape, almost looks like a, what's a Mexican uh, empanada. Mm-hmm. It almost looks like that. It's dough with almond paste in the middle, wrapped up and barely baked. I mean, it's baked, but it's white. And it's, it, you taste that it's very sweet, but it's super delicious mm. at the end of a meal. And also, the best orange juice I've ever had every single day. I, I mean, that orange juice was just. Came back to Seattle, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get some oranges. <laughs> nope. All right, next gonna... time when we talk about your trip, we have to hear a little bit more about couscous and pomegranates and <laughs> some have, of the other delicious I haven't had a chance yet. I know, I understand. Hour two's coming up. We've got Pike Place Brewing here. We've got gratins, which you could speak to. We might even have to jump back to Morocco. I'm not sure. Gratin. And then, uh, of course, we're going to f- wrap it up with Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. Brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs. So that's what's coming up here on Cairo. Stay with us. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. But you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express. Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. But you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express. They're taking me to Marrakesh. All on board. Well, I believe I'll have me a baby. Cause it ain't sold in heaven, you gotta buy it right here. And you can't Welcome back, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. We are on Cairo, as you probably can figure out here, 97.3 FM. Also, if you ever want to podcast us. And I've, I was remiss in, uh, I forgot to mention Keyport Seafood is the people who gave us oh, that yeah. beautiful bear eye crab that we've been chowing on. And if you want to find anything more about uh their stuff. I think they sell it in, in the Kroger markets under Keyport brand, and uh, we really liked their product. It's yeah. very good. In this hour, we've got Pike Place, or it's not Pike Place anymore, is no. it? It's Pike Brewing. Uh, we have I the old. Leslie was going to jump on you for yeah, that. You one. know, see, I, I, I caught right. myself. I'm not, I'm not that energetic. Pike <laughs> Brewing for. Uh, we're going to talk about the history of one of Seattle's oldest brew pubs, uh, where it was, and where it's going. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Gratin, although I might, Terry, I, I feel like I kind of want to 
Would you be opposed to hearing more about Morocco? I would not. Okay, so maybe we'll save that for next week, though. Gratin. Gratin. How do you say it? Gratin. Gratin. Exactly. Gratin. Because I want to hear more about Morocco Morocco, and some of the foods that you had. And uh, we also, of course, we're going to finish up with a Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. Super important segment that our producer loves. Leslie Shore is here. It's a hop season. We've just watched them all being mowed down from the backyard of our farm. We have 300 acres of hops across the river, the Yakima from us. And then on the way to and from through the Yakima Valley, there's hops everywhere. I smell really good. Oh, I, I think I told people on the last show that one of my favorite things to do when you're in hop country during this time of year is to pull in behind. You know, you always want in the past of big semis. Don't do it. Pull in behind. You'll see the big gray bales of hops. Just pull in behind it. Go to that 60-mile-an-hour truck. Open your window. Open your windows <laughs> and just let it breathe in. It's so fun and so beautiful. and such a telling time of year over in hop country. It's amazingly fragrant. It's yeah. intoxicating in and of itself, you know, without getting drunk. It's just, it overtakes all of your senses and yeah. it just, you just are awash in all of the different aromas. It's, it's one of the most beautiful sensory, uh, sensory things that anyone can I think, it's, experience. It's so frustrating though. It's very hard to cook with. I was just making <laughs> yeah. hop, hop honey for a cornbread down at Etta's. It's just so hard to get the bitterness it's too out. Powerful. It's, it's, it's too it's powerful. Yeah. It's amazing. I yeah. tried making hop fried chicken about 10 years ago uh-huh. with some Cascade hops. And uh, it's it's very difficult to get that isomerization down so where you're not pulling out all of that bitterness in the cooking process. Yeah, so even in the yeah. really citrusy ones, like the citra hops, mm-hmm. it's still the back end of it is very bitter when you try to cook with it. It's true. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about this historic place that you've taken over. And, uh, you know, Pamela, you have a long history with Pike Place and Charlie Finkel because you remember him back when you were buying beers at Merchant Devon, right? Exactly. Yeah. He was really uh, visionary in introducing craft and small-scale, high-quality beers to our marketplace long before he started his own brewery. So we owe a debt of gratitude to Charles and Roseanne Finkel. I agree. I mean, you're, you'd be hard-pressed to find another place, another person that could bring in all of those beautiful beers from Belgium, from the UK, from the continent, over to North America at a time when finding beer was quite um, a, an arduous task. If you wanted to find something that wasn't a mass-produced macro beer, you couldn't. It was very, very difficult to do. And so, I mean, for the entire United States, we completely owe them that, that Absolutely. debt. Absolutely. That, that credit. Absolutely. One of my favorites that he brought over that uh, way back when was the Eying Brewery. Yes. That is Bavaria. our sister brewery. Is it? Yes. Uh, like a sister city kind of thing? Um, they are our sister brewery. So um, they they make this beer called Doppelbach. It, uh-huh. it has the goat on it. And that actually, Roseanne came up with the suggestion of putting the goat on there and calling it a Doppelbach. Interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. It's, that sounds like rules. <laughs> she was feisty, that one. Uh, she passed maybe two years, three years ago, I think. Uh, but it was two years ago. Yeah, she was a very sweet woman. And uh, it's hard to even see Charlie without her because they were such a pair. They were such a team. It seemed like an incredible marriage. Yeah. yeah. They were very so happy together and happy. Get going. I mean, always up, always yeah. going, super positive. I mean, so Leslie, did Charles hire you or how did you uh, work your way into pike oh, growing? Oh, wow. So I noticed that this position had been open for quite a few months <clears throat> and it hadn't been filled. So I cold emailed Drew Gillespie out of the blue. 
And you were brewing at Rubens at the time, I was right? still at Rubens, yeah. yeah. And I just basically said, I'd like to have a casual conversation. What does this entail? And we started talking, and he and I really clicked on a lot of our core values, what our visions are for a company, how people should be treated, how beer should be produced. And uh, then that just led to a meeting with Charles and um, Patty, who is our vice president. And that was very organic and very natural, and we just really clicked. And it sincerely just came from a casual conversation. Uh And you're not um, saying brewmaster, you're saying head brewer. Is there some... Something going on there we should understand. So brewmaster is an actual physical title. It's uh, it's uh, very uh, in step with a PhD or a doctorate level of brewing sciences. And that's, there's not that many people that actually have that designation in the United States. They might claim it at some Correct. operations, but Correct. not earned it. Correct. Hey, go a little dirt from the industry. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I didn't know that. So. I didn't know that either. Are you going to go for it? Is it necessary? um... I think at this point, it's simply a personal fulfillment quest. So if that is something where I'm I'm reaching this apex and and I'm plateauing, and if we're talking about me, then that is something that I might go for down the road. Just to say, yeah, I've, I've mastered this and I've mastered that. At the moment, I feel incredibly confident and comfortable with the amount of knowledge that I have for process controls, recipe development, plant management, fabrication. I'm not a welder, but I can learn that kind of thing. <laughs> We're basically a food processing plant. So, you know, there, there are a lot of different components that go into making an ingredient that people consume on a daily basis. And did you um, agree to keep up the legacy of the style of beers that Pike was already making? Or um, were there conversations about adding to the varieties? So there definitely was a massive conversation about adding to the variety of beers that Pike has produced over the years. So um, there was a a more confined um, selection of styles that were available. And in order to maintain relevancy... After being in business for over 30 years, it came to be that, hey, we, we need to really pump up uh, not just our uh, core beer lineup, but also bring in some new styles and occasionally rotate those in and out throughout the years. And so that's what we're starting to do. And just for the benefit of our broader audience, uh, could you give them the 411 on... <laughs> Uh, what defines craft beer and the styles that you make? Because I, I think people need to be reminded of the purity of the ingredient base that you work with. You Absolutely. can tell Pamela you used to run Red Hook for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't tell at all. <laughs> so uh, craft beer is uh, completely different from macro or, ma- uh, or mass-produced beer. Uh, we have a lot of... Uh, control over our ingredients. We can produce a lot of different styles. So basically, instead of having a core menu that has three ing- three plates on the menu, we now have a menu that has maybe 10 plates on the menu. And you're also looking at the fact that your ingredients can come from a shorter afield instead of farther afield. You also have a lot of control over flavor, taste. Uh, there's also terroir notes that come into play when it comes to your grain, your hops, and your yeast. What about addition? You mean like, it's not like Bud Bud Light and Bud Natural? <laughs> exactly. What about ingredient addition? Can you add? Absolutely. It's fermentation. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> I like that. Unlike bourbon, where you have to have a certain <laughs> core group of ingredients. Very true. Wow. Beer, you can do a lot with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk more about that and the transition that you're making currently from Pike Place Brewing to Pike. 
on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Hey, I like beer. It makes me a jolly good All right, we're back in the hot stove kitchen. We're sitting here yakking with Leslie Shore. She's the head brewer uh, at Pike Brewing. You were adamant, it sounds like, and saying that uh, things needed a little bit of a change after 30 years in business and that they needed to become more to date. How does that happen? I know Pam asked you that in the last segment a little bit, but what have you done to bring the beer profiles more up to date? I think it's more of like uh, you're, you're looking at you're looking at the recipes and the processes in a forensic manner, right? Mm-hmm. So you're looking at, at what are the common traits for each particular recipe. Um, are, there, are there ways that they can be improved or refined? Uh, and then I just started from there. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I'm building a menu, like I'm working on this Edda's menu a lot recently, and, um, and I work with some of the young people in the, our company, and a lot of it... it you know, when, you, when you're making, say, uh, a turkey sandwich, it really is the same organic turkey. It really is the same delicious cheese. But the way it's worded, the, the, the terminology sounds old-fashioned or it can sound brand new and, mm-hmm. and fresh. And so it's funny to have them kind of like, oh, let's not call it sandwiches, okay? <laughs> you know, or right. whatever, as far as like, or let's not even have a, a menu category. Like, right. you know, you and I probably are thinking about appetizers correct entrees desserts and this like no that's just old-fashioned terminology yeah. it's like, okay then and so <laughs> you just kind of move move along with that but yours is is it similar in in how you're deciding to do the beer there must be a whole new beer terminology out there with all these crazy names on yeah. some of the product yeah so there there are there are some changes when it comes to beer terminology there's a lot of slang that's involved as well but beer styles are generally set in stone although it's not an igneous rock it's more uh-huh. of a very porous rock so the styles are always evolving and always changing but over the years they're still within those stringent guidelines of this is what a scotch ale should taste like here are the parameters brew it to that this is what an american indian india ipa should taste like and this is these are the parameters brew it to that this is what a german pilsner should taste like brew it to that so you can you can say we only brew ales and lagers and leave it at that or you can say we brew this very fancy term or we can brew this and this and this and and it's it's all it really is part of the marketing the product is generally the same i'm just laughing because you know in front of us we have some of what i'm talking about so here's a cosmic pulp juicy ipa (laughs) so so what makes that different than ballard bitter (laughs) (laughs) well i i miss old ballard bitter to be honest um esbs are my favorite style of beer so that's let's just put that out there juicy ipas are um a, a designation of a hazy style so hazy is a northeastern style ipa versus a west coast ipa which would be clear uh, northeast ipas are going to be hazy kind of like what what terry has uh, in front of him so uh, a juicy one just implies that there's more of uh, there's more body, there's more aroma. You have a lot uh, of of flavor profiles happening and interacting with your sensories. So in front of us we have West po- West Coast IPA, we have 
Cold IPA, we have Cosmic Pulp Juicy IPA, and we have uh, Waterfront IPA mm-hmm. and Uptown Hazy IPA. Yeah. Whoa, so a family. It's a family of oppy beers with a Pilsner. <laughs> does each one just have a different uh, hop so or each, multiple? Each, each one of these has a different grain bill, has a different hop profile. Uh, two of them have a similar yeast strain. The other two have a different yet similar yeast strain. And the cold IPA has the same yeast strain as our Pilsner. Oh, wow. The Pilsner is super tasty, by the way. That's yeah, much, much more st- I like style. I like Pilsner, beer. too. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm personally, I'm not a big, strong IPA beer mm-hmm. drinker, but I, I, usually Pilsner is what I drink. So. I love Pilsners. They're, they're very refined. They can be That's crisp. what I think. I think yeah. they, they feel very refined. Yes. Down at the restaurant, we were tasting some wine, uh, some keg wine yesterday for what we're going to put on tap there. And, and we also had a new Rubens. IPA. I want to say it was called um, Harmonic or something like that. And the ex- explanation on paper was that it was all the comments that all the people have made about their IPA, and they tried to satisfy everyone in this in the same IPA. <laughs> Impossible. IPA. It was just the funniest thing. It's like, oh the my god, are picky. Um, what's your dream for Pike? Where do you want to see it go? Where oh, you, where I you- I definitely want to make sure that you know we get more more folks that keep passing by us when we're at beer festivals saying, oh, Pike, I've been there, I've mm-hmm. drank there, and then they don't drink it or, or they don't stop at the booth or, or we haven't seen them. We've got all these other options now. You know, right. the, we're, we're in the grocery stores, we're in your bottle shops, and we're, we're in our pub downtown, but we're also going to be in some newer locations throughout the city. And you're adding to the classics constantly. We certainly are. We certainly are. And a lot of the a lot of this is seeing what's going to stick around, what kind of styles are going to stick around, yeah. and what, what we can like bring in and pull back with seasonals. Not everything is going to be an instant classic. Not everything is going to be, you know, set in stone forever. Styles do change. Tastes <coughs> do change. I mean, case in point, ESB. ESB is not a very popular style. Extra special bitter. Yes. Yeah. But um, people still search it out and drink it, but uh-huh. it's not in the numbers that it was 25 years ago. Right. Yeah. Are you ever going to try to make a Guinness? Oh, I love dry stouts. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Dry stouts are one of my... Look, I cut my teeth on Guinness. <laughs> I cut my drinking teeth on Guinness. I think Guinness. a draft Guinness is... <laughs> it's superb. Super yeah. delicious. Yes. That's so so always... what's the answer? <laughs> You didn't say yes or no. You just said, oh, I love it. We can, we can definitely make it. We have a pilot system where we can go really wild with a lot of different outre styles. That would be interesting. Do you know when you come across a flavor profile that you've dreamt about and you finally made, do you know what, oh, this is going to be a hit? It's People more, are going to love know what? this. I really don't consider it whether or not it's a hit or, or a failure. To me, it's like, I, this is what I want to drink. This is something in my brain that I would like to, to, to ferment and drink and enjoy and, and derive pleasure from. And hopefully other folks will too. It's the same in food, Let's I think. cover the pub before for, we okay, lose Leslie. Okay. What's going on at the pub uh, for food and beer matchups? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so um, a lot of our, a lot of our um, uh, menu items are very compatible, obviously, with the beers that we're producing. I mean, you can't go wrong with Pilsner and a hamburger. But you know what? Uh, a nice Cosmic Pulp goes really well with our Peach Cobbler that you can what? find. Yeah, it's delightful. Um, the Waterfront IPA is amazing with our fish and chips upstairs at the fish bar. Uh, one of my favorite combinations, honestly, is our Pilsner with oysters up at the fish bar. Oh, I bet. The Pilsner really does like satisfy that minerality that, that you might crave when you're thinking, I would like some champagne or I would like a nice kava with these oysters. Pilsner can take care of that for you. What yeah. about smoked salmon? Smoked salmon goes with pretty much anything you want. <laughs> Your Pilsner is custardy. 
compared yeah. to a lot. You know, you, you, it seems to me a lot of Pilsners like Moretti or Urquell or or St. Pauli Girl or whatever they're they are sharper and yours sharper. is more custardy. Yes, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, it's it's something that I think is quite indicative. It showcases the grain that we're using. We're using a really nice soft German grain there. So we're going to elicit uh, different kinds of beautiful flavors. The yeast is from a very old, old German brewery. So we're not going to get those really sharp, bitter, high notes uh-huh. and astringent notes in the back of the mouth. We're going for something that has a nice, smooth body. It finishes dry, but it's not piercing. All right, everybody, get out there and look nice. for the new flavors from Pike Brewing. Super fun. I'll go down to the pub and look for Leslie and tell her, I want to sit and have a beer with you. You seem very interesting. <laughs> She's the head brewer for Pike Brewing. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk either Gratins or a little more about Morocco. We'll see what uh, Terry has on the on the tip of his tongue on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. <laughs> It began in Africa. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Time. Thank you for joining us. We're always here on on a Friday morning live if you want to join us on YouTube. Or you can hear us uh, on Terrestrial Radio Saturdays and Sundays on Cairo, 4 to 6 generally, I believe. Unless they move us around for a, a sports game. As usual, you can look us up and podcast us all week long or forever. Listen to us when we were pups. You have no excuses not to listen to <laughs> us. Pamela, you had written down here. Pamela's our producer. Uh, written down here that... Uh, you wanted to hear about Gratins because the weather is turning, finally, and uh, it's, it feels very Gratin-like. Uh, but I also want to hear a little bit more about Morocco. There's yes. a few subjects we didn't cover. I know. We'll uh, have so to do Morocco. You, do you want to do Morocco again next week or, or and do Gratins now? Or? No, let's stay in Morocco. Let's we'll stay bring in What is fresh? Yep. We'll bring crap. You know, he's, 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 he's not a young chicken anymore. He doesn't have the memory. He exactly. Yeah. By, so by next week, I might not remember anything. <laughs> exactly. No. So, Let's uh, continue the journey. You said uh, to me in the break that you had one restaurant that stood out because it was more in the nature of or style that you're used to com- uh, cooking in, like Correct. Rovers or and you Lulu. Would, you would have appreciated, too, because everywhere we went, it was classically done, kind of tagine, kind of couscous where this restaurant actually took it a level above where it made it really pretty but very changed it without make it unrecognizable. So it was kind of an adventure into what would, if I was personally or you would, go into a kitchen and say, cook me some Moroccan food. Here are the basic of what the classic is. What would you do with that? Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt this chef was doing. His name is Moha and he's in Fez. And it was the best lunch I've had the whole trip that mm-hmm. we were there. For example, I was talking about the salads earlier, um, which is... And, being- and I just want to make it clear to people, it's not really, when you say salads, if you think of like going into a Korean restaurant, barbecue restaurant, where you get all that variety of little dishes, I don't, I don't remember what that service is called. Bancha, yeah, where there's all the little 
salads, potato salad, squid salad, you know, all, all that little stuff. It's the same idea, right? Same concept, exactly. So there's no greens, as in leafy green, but it's all already made carrot salad, charmoula. They have all kind of... De- it's almost like a dipping. Mm-hmm. They puree everything, tomato. So like a meze almost. La- like a meze, exactly. Yeah. So they have the flatbread. You use the flatbread and then almost like a pita. You don't, it's not an open pocket, but mm-hmm. use the flatbread to dip into all the sauces. And very tasty, but very classic. You know, in, in most cases, it's very recognizable in all the places. The eggplant mixed with the tomato. Eggplant burned on the fire mm-hmm. and then just chopped, mixed with tomato, onions, cumin, lots of cumin, um, coriander, salt, pepper, olive oil. That's your salad for eggplant, tomato. Classic American salad is onion, tomato, sliced, diced, uh, cilantro, parsley. That's what you see in every restaurant. Mint, that's the classic American salad. Mm -hmm. And olive oil, obviously, salt and pepper. Um, And a little... um, Whereas in Spain, just just north, really, uh, you see that similar. There's no green salad. Right. It's more eggplant, pepper, and onion. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Basque style uh, in the Basque country, yeah. So the salads are the one thing, but the, this restaurant we went for lunch, all I like is that chef took those, those salads and, for example, everything was in the first metze, for example, all the different salads were in a small tagine, individual tagine, and then when you opened it, everything was quenelled, so... Presentation was really, I know you're going to laugh at that. Yeah, totally. Sounds very pretty. <laughs> it's very pretty, but more importantly, it wasn't deceivingly pretty, meaning that it was pretty. Then once you tasted it, it had something that the others didn't have because they were all fairly much mm-hmm. the same. This one took it a zip higher. It was a little confit of lemon, uh, you know, added some touches that I would do mm-hmm. if I was making it. I felt right at home. I was like, this guy's making Moroccan cooking. At know, a different level, yeah. At a different level. And, and trying to bring it up to, what I felt was trying to bring it up to the dining scene of 2022. And not that there's anything wrong with the rest. It's just... Totally, and it's, it's like... Kind of a movement. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I, I, we're not trying to... You're, you weren't trying to make Moroccan food change. Correct. It's just that it's nice Correct. to have different levels of right. presentation. Yeah, and the other one, the other dinner that I had that was fantastic was... A place called Nur, N-U-R, in Fez also, um, by this woman chef that's been there for probably six, seven years. Small, very small restaurant. We had a table of uh, 12 people. That was, you know, the entire restaurant for the night. So, you know, they opened just for us, I guess, for that night. And um, multi-course dinner. And same thing. She was very taking each ingredient and making it showcase. And she used to work at Il Bulli. So you can imagine. Il Bulli, the most famous avant-garde restaurant in the world. Correct. Yeah. So she took a little bit of that play and put that into Moroccan food. <clears throat> that was, I thought, very creative. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, it's nice to see them. You know, she's a Moroccan woman who grew up in Fez. And I'm like, it's very nice to see those people are very proud of their culture, their heritage, and trying to bring it up to, you know, the youth of today and, and trying to bring it up to light. Yeah. You know, it's not just tagine. It's not just your your couscous and everything. And the third thing I want to talk about is couscous. Thank you. So you never mentioned that the first time around. <clears throat> well, yeah, um, couscous. So I had this uh, awakening. Uh, this is how I make couscous at home. I make couscous. I put couscous in a big deep pan. I warm up my chicken stock, or my vegetable stock or whatever, put some saffron in it, and then pour it over the couscous, cover it with a plastic sheet film, and wait seven to ten minutes. Take your plastic out. 
take a fork, take some olive oil, and fork out gently the couscous so it's all nice and fluffy. I thought that was couscous. Ooh, I got scorned by a woman chef in, in Fez again, where we took a cooking demo slash dinner. Mm-hmm. She was super nice and everything, and she was making, she goes, okay, I'm, I'm like... Oh. Did she have a couscousserie? Couscousière. Couscousière. Yeah. And, but I was like, well, don't you ever make it in the pan? She goes, oh, you're one of those people who likes raw couscous. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean raw? I'm like, it's totally cooked after seven minutes. I was like, ooh, I was like, me, who's always, you know, saying about raw bakery and raw. Mm. I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? She cooked the couscous for an hour. No. One, I, I was there. Gosh. One hour in the couscousier, mm-hmm. and then she took it out, put it in the pan, fluff it up with olive oil, a little seasoning, let it sit in a big bowl to cool off a little bit, wow. and then once all the lamb tagine was ready, which that was during the lamb tagine, when the lamb tagine was cooked, she put it back to warm up in the couscousier again, and I was like, <laughs> how many times are you going to cook this thing? It came out. It was was pasta, right? So so, it was the fluffiest, lightest thing I've ever eaten. So, boom, boom to you. Saffron, saffron's. uh, What do you call it? The the threads. Threads of saffron put into the couscous at the last minute with just a little bit of the bouillon. She also made a um, vegetable tagine at the same time. And then put a little bit of that juice right in the couscous. So explain to people how the couscousier works. <laughs> couscousier is like a steam, it's like a steam pot. First one I ever saw was at Sur La Table down in the yeah. Pike Place Market. So a couscousier is called a couscousier because you put couscous in it. But it would be the same if you had a strainer that had small holes. Because you have to remember, couscous is not very big, you know, small marbles of, of grain, of uh, pasta. Of pasta. So you, of dough, basically. So you don't want a big hole in your couscous here in the steam, but it's the same idea as a steaming utensil. So the top part is where you put your couscous. The bottom part is where you put your water. You put a little spice in your water to season it, to give it a little flavor, and then you steam your couscous. One hour, Tom. Have you ever cooked couscous for one hour? No, but I would say that steaming is not like putting it in boiling water for an hour. It would be a paste in boiling water for an hour, whereas well, no, steaming no, is sure. a different type of heat. That, Correct. Yeah. And that, that's, that, that is one of the key ingredients, is it's a gentle steam. Uh, me, I just pour the hot water onto the couscous no, yeah, that's, without, without cooking. So, the, yes, I, I agree. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a different style, but still... I would have, if you would have asked me, I would have said, you're out of your mind. You're going to end up with a bowl of paste. Yeah. Did she ever stir it at all? Or just a one hour straight? Don't take the lid off, you jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Leave my couscous alone. (laughs) (laughs) And then with that, the flavor. I love that she dressed you down. Oh, Oh, so you like rock couscous. (laughs) I know. I was like, what? And I was like, what do you mean you're scorning me about cooking couscous? Not enough. You're a colonizer. You just have to get over it. I know. Yeah. I, I, and believe me, I will try to do it away again because I was very astonished by the results. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you learned something. Yeah. Always, no, I did learn that. We learn something every day, don't we? I, yeah. And also learned that zucchini don't cook as much as you think they do. I saw her put zucchini with carrots and turnips into a couscous here. And I was like, don't you want to wait to put the zucchini in? She was like, No. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to learn something again. They never came out on the mush. They were not like Uh falling apart. I mean, you know it takes longer to cook a zucchini. I mean, a carrot. carrot. So anyway, I learned that too. All right, food for thought, tasty trivia. 
When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. Oh, boy. Let's jump right into Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by our very own Spice Rubs, the Rub with Love blends and sauces. As chefs, we are always looking for unique ways to build flavor, and a a pantry stock with uh, Rub with Love spices is a valuable tool. Our Rub with Love blends have a wide range of flavor and different profiles, and why not collect them all? That's what I say. All 20 of them. Rub with Love is available in your local neighborhood grocers like Thriftway, Metropolitan Market, or QFC, or even smaller markets like Bob's Quality Meats in Columbia City, or Tony's Smokehouse in Oregon City, Oregon, or in Pamela's Old Stomping Grounds, The Pantry in Fairfield, Connecticut. Did you run into them in Fairfield, Connecticut? I did not. Oh, okay. She was back there cooking lunch for her mom. I thought I know. she ran into them. Okay, uh, so our prize today is a little shopping spree in the Rub with Love gift shop Ooh, over here la, la. to my right. And uh, you get um, a three-pack, those red boxes where you can mix and match any three flavors that you want. Tell us who you are, who, we're, who Terry and I are going to crush today. I'm Nita. Good. Hi, Nita. Hi, Nita. I need a hairstyle because you and I have the same hairstyle. We, yes, we go to the same beautician. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> beautician. Hi, Nita. Nice to meet you. Uh, Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Susan. And I am absolutely like, this is my bucket list. All right. Whoa. Lulay's is close, but I always, oh, yeah, all your restaurants. Okay, all Suzanne, restaurants. I appreciate that. Now I'm just going to make you get up to that microphone when you talk to me, though. Bucket list. I like that, Pam. I know it. Tell us how we play this game and... Uh, we already know who the winners are going to be. <laughs> if I know you. Should I just put five on their, on their list? Yeah. Each contestant gets five questions, and there will be a loser. <laughs> that gets the least amount. You sure there's correct. not two losers and one winner? <laughs> Terry Rotoro likes to start. All right, let's do it. Number one, sweetbreads are from which organs in the animals? What do you mean? The glands, specifically. Oh, thymus, I'm sorry. I was not thinking gland, gland. I was thinking the where, sorry. Thymus Thymus gland. And pancreas. Number two, please name the plant from which we derive tapioca. Uh oh, I'm fuzzy with a bear today. Jet lag, I'm going to blame that. It's not coming up. Manioc, also known as cassava. Cassava is what I was looking for. This one is adorable. Some cakes are so large, it is hard to bake their centers without burning their surfaces. Accordingly, a round pan with a vertical cone in its middle was devised and named in the 19th century. What is that pan called? Savarin. Oh, I had Turk's head, but say what you call it. Savarin mold. Okay. The one with the cone in the middle. I call it an angel food cake pan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, you didn't say what, what, what language you were supposed to speak. In. I know you got that. She one. went to get a Turkish name. I'm a what? In what country would you commonly find the hot curry dish vindaloo? Uh, India. Yes, 
And finally, what type of food is Winkle? Perry. Yes. It's Perry food. And what, <laughs> what kind of food is I'm Winkle? I'm glad he thinks she's so funny. Well, Perry, Perry Winkle. Winkle. It's, yeah, cl- I, it's I, a I, clam, I mean, a uh, snail. Snail, correct. Sea snail. How many did you get? Four. Three. Four. Four. Which one did I get besides? Cassava. I didn't get cassava, yeah. And what was the first one? Well, I got the first one. I said Tynus. Tynus. Sweetbreads, yeah. He came, he came up with Timus. I came on the tail end. Okay. Fine. All right. All right. Your turn. I Let's like see. it. All right. Okay. Are you ready? We're for ready. Now? You're okay. ready. We want the easy ones. When you buy a bottle of uh, wine or a carton of milk, what is the space near the top of the vessel that has no liquid in it called? You need a? Oh. Oh, yeah. You need a? Uh, Ulage. <laughs> Oh, oh, it's the Ulage. It's spelled with a U. I thought it was an H. Number two. <laughs> when you are baking pies, how would you use a rimmer? I would put it, it's a, a thing that you put around the top to keep the crust from burning. So the center gets done, but the crust doesn't. And it, it, the crimped and crenellated edges of the crust are formed with a device called a rimmer so the pastry can give and not crack. So That helping. device in my kitchen is my fingers. Yes, you yeah. have your own exactly. rimmer. <laughs> All right, I guess they get that one. They All get right. that one. Uh, what is the name of the crescent-shaped chopping knife? Ulu? No. Close. It's got a U in it. They use it in Alaska all the time. Yes. Um, that's exactly what we're looking I for. I have two of them on my windowsill. Well, that's yep. good enough for me. Okay. You yeah. The Metzaluna. Metzaluna. Uh, oh, okay. Yep. Well. You were there. Omnivorous is the word meaning all-devouring. So what is the word that uses that same suffix for flesh-devouring? Carnivorous? Yes. Boy, we have some sharp Woo! competitors today. Three so far. Woo! And finally, what is marzipan? Almond paste. Yes. Four out of five. Four out of five. Four out of five. Tom Douglas, what is the variety of rice common in Indian cooking that smells so sweet and delightful? Basmati. Yes. Which state in America produced Colby cheese? Colby cheese. Like Colby cheddar? I'm going to say Vermont. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. This one I researched especially for you. What is the name of the green grocer from San Francisco that extolled the virtues of fruits and vegetables in the 60s and 70s? I love him. I know you do. Can you remember his name? Joe Carcioni. Yes. Wow. Wow. Uh, Number four, please name three vegetables that are more nutritious when cooked. I have to name three that seem a yeah, little bit yeah. outrageous. No, there's like 12 that are commonly known, so. Are commonly known. <laughs> I love what Broccoli. you say, commonly known. Yeah, of course. Okay, since I have no idea, I'm going to Chocolate is no one. Does anyone out there know? Your favorite, Tom, beets. Okay, beets. Beets is n- uh, not on the list. Yeah. Wow. No, nobody okay, likes the beets. the three most popular for reasons of... Uh, being able to break down their cell walls to um, ah, I didn't think make about the, it that way. Yep, are tomatoes, asparagus, and spinach. Uh, there's well, a don't great... your molars break down the cell walls too? Why do they have to be cut? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I have a stomach for a reason. This is in. Uh, do you guys listen to Herb Weisbaum, the Consumer Man? 
on Channel 4, he's I think, got, um, Como Radio. But he just did Consumer Reports has a wonderful new article about this. Vegetables that better for you cook. Right. And finally, what is the dominant red grape in northern Rhone red wines? It's a trick question. Think, think Beaujolais. Gamay. Yes! Syrah in the northern I Rhone. Syrah was the south. South. Grenache in the south. Uh. Oh, yeah. I was wrong the whole time. I would have got that wrong. You're right on there. You know, on Air France, the lady insisted, I took Air France over to Paris, she insisted that Cotteron was a Burgundy. It is. I understand. I argued with her, but I was wrong. It's in that, it's in that region. Beaujolais is actually a division there. They, they've always fight that. All right. Congratulations, ladies. Yes. You get a little stroll through our gift shop. Uh, thank you so much for participating, and thank you to Pam for giving me the hardest questions. Um, if you want to be part of our show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas & Co. Or buy a ticket to join us here in the studio, the beautiful Hotel Andre and the Hot Stove Society kitchens. Uh, the show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean DeTore. Remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can uh, listen via podcast. Or just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.